What I wanted to do is um, start by having you open up to Acts chapter 7. If you read the notes, which I hope you do, you will find out that there are, you know, we're doing study on typology. Typology is the study of types. Types are pictures. There's a lot of pictures. It's, the Bible is like a picture book, you know, that you get for your kids, full of pictures of of especially Christ. That's what this study is, finding Christ, pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, Old Testament Christology. Now, there are a lot of um, Bible teachers and pastors and seminary professors who totally stay away from types. I think they make, I know they make a big mistake when they do that because they're there. Noah's Ark is a picture of Christ. I mean, the one door of the ark is a picture of Christ. There's so many things. The Passover lamb is a picture of Christ. And if you stay away from types, you miss all that richness. There's so much more than just those basic ones, which is what I'm trying to, you know, the seven feasts of Israel we'll get to uh, next year. Um, They're so rich. I think we will. (laughs) Who knows? I might bog down with Moses because Moses is a picture just like Joseph of types. But anyway... So there are people who totally avoid types, and then there are other people on the other extreme who just go overboard, and they see a picture in everything. And if it isn't there, they make it up. Now, so you have to you know, stay down the middle, the middle ground. So what a lot of people do is they'll say, okay, if, the t- if, if it tells us in the scripture that this is a type, then you're safe. You're okay to say this is a type. So, because of that, there are commentators and pastors who will tell you that Joseph, we cannot use Joseph as a picture type of Jesus. But, they, they forget, and, and the reason they say that is because it never says in the New Testament that he is a picture of Christ. Are you following me? That's extreme. Because it's so obvious that he is. There are over a hundred ways in which he pictures Christ. But what they forget is that there is. We do have justification for using Joseph as a picture of Jesus. And it comes from the mouth of the first martyr of the church, Stephen. In his marvelous sermon, which we looked at a couple years ago when we studied Acts, his one and only sermon that he ever gave. It was so fantastic that they had to shut him up permanently. And even that didn't succeed because he really affected one guy watching and listening. And that fellow's name was Paul. And so he speaks on, you know, through Paul. Anyway, um, he gave a powerful, powerful, irrefutable sermon, biblically irrefutable in chapter 7. And in it, he gives us permission Because his words are inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded in the word of God. He gives us permission for saying that Joseph is a type of Christ. So let's look at what he said in verse, starting in verse 9. Stephen's reply to the Sanhedrin. He was accused of blasphemy by the the high council of, of Israel. And so he refutes that, he gives his own defense, but when he gets to verse 9, he says, and the patriarchs, now who are they? Who is he talking about? Yeah, it's specifically here he's talking about the 12 patriarchs, the sons of Jacob, Joseph's, 
Joseph and his brothers. And the patriarchs, and you'll know that by what he says next. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt. That would be the famine and Canaan, not only Egypt, but also the land of Israel, and great affliction. And our fathers, that's the patriarchs, the 12 tribe fathers, found what? No sustenance in the famine. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, I underlined that in my Bible, the first time Joseph came out to his brothers, what did they do? They rejected him, and they threw him in a pit, and they were going to kill him, weren't they? They sold him as a slave to to the uh, Ishmaelites. Well, look what happened at the second time. The second time Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. His whole family was introduced to Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. We know, you know, once he revealed himself to his brothers, they went back, got their father and all their families, and they came and they lived in the land of Egypt where they received sustenance. And they were spared from from, um, dying because of the famine. Well, we're going to talk about that. Um... The fact that Joseph is a definitely a type, because Stephen gives us permission to do this, he is a type of Jesus. Joseph was the first of a number of God-chosen deliverers of his people, Uh, and they served as prophetic pictures of the great deliverer of his people, and that would be, of course, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these men included not only Joseph, But Moses, when we get to Moses, you're going to find out some shocking things, that he was just about as much a type in almost as many ways, if not more, as Joseph. That really surprised me when I studied uh, Stephen's sermon. He gets into Moses and how he's also, wasn't he rejected the first time? Yeah, we don't want this guy ruling over us, this murderer. And so he had to flee to the desert for 40 years, right? But the second time when he came back, they accepted him as their deliverer. So Joseph and Moses and David is a picture. And um, many of the prophets of God were pictures of Christ and the judges. And they all presented a pattern for the manner in which Jesus would accomplish his deliverance, saving work for mankind. How how, How would he do that? Well, he would come the first time as a suffering servant, right? And he would be rejected. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. First coming, rejection. Second coming, acceptance and reigning. So the pattern was always rejection before reigning, suffering before splendor, gloom before glory, Humiliation before honor, the lowest pit before the highest pinnacle. 
And this was the message that Stephen presented as he stood before the Jewish high council to defend himself against their false charges of blasphemy. His powerful sermon, he was a brilliant man. This, this guy, it was just a young man, but he was brilliant when it came to understanding Old Testament Christology, the types of Jesus in the Old Testament. His sermon here, and by the way, this is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, longer than any of Peter's or Paul's. It's the longest sermon. But it was so irrefutable in its wisdom and biblical proof that the real ones who were guilty of blasphemy were the council members, the high priests and the chief priests and the Sadducees, those guys who had willfully rejected and put to death. Look at verse 52. Who did they put to death? The just one. Let me read you that verse. Stephen still talking. <laughs> He, he's very subtle all the way through, and he's giving them a his, their own history, which the Jews love to hear over and over again, their own wonderful history. And so he, that's why he gets their attention, because he's giving them what they want to hear. But then he gets to verse 51, and look what happens. He's, all of a sudden, he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before. This means they're pictures. They showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. You know what he just called Jesus there? He didn't use his name Jesus but he called him the just one. There is only one just one. Who is the just one? God. In other words, he's saying the one you just betrayed and murdered is God. There's only one just one. That was powerful. And that's why they, <laughs> they couldn't refute him. But tragically, their response to his incredibly Christological sermon is, uh, well, their reaction was that they were cut to the heart. It cut them to the heart. You know, the word of God, he was giving them their own word. The word of God is powerful and piercing, isn't it? I mean, it pierced their hearts. And yet, their only reaction was they gnashed their teeth in seething anger, and then they permanently silenced him with stones. Although he wasn't permanently silenced because he still speaks to us through the word. And he spoke through the Apostle Paul. Stephen, however, would have failed. He would have failed as a um, spirit-filled New Testament preacher if he did not, in his sermon, present evidence for having faith in Jesus, which he did incredibly without even mentioning Jesus' name once. He gave them evidence for believing Jesus was their Messiah and God, the just one, and yet he never used Jesus' name. What do you think would have happened the minute he did? They would have stoned him there, or they would have stopped listening. So he was very clever. You know, the only time he spoke the blessed name of Jesus was as he was dying. 
And he looked up and saw him standing. Stephen got a standing ovation from Jesus because usually he's sitting at the right. He stood up to welcome Stephen home. But that's when he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 59. So how was it that Stephen preached Jesus silently? How did he do it? By using typology. He used Joseph, he used Moses, and a short reference to the other persecuted and slain Old Testament prophets as picture types of Israel's rejection of Jesus. The Jews' rejection of God's ultimate deliverer with a capital D, and Jesus is the only spiritual deliverer, right? Joseph and Moses, they were physical deliverers that God used to get them the Jewish people safe into Egypt and then safe out of Egypt. They were physical deliverers. Jesus is our spiritual deliverer. And ultimately, he's also our physical deliverer because we'll receive new glorified bodies. Um, but anyway, the Jew, their rejection of Jesus was the consequential climax of their rejection of God's deliverers in every single period of their history, of Israel's history. And that's what he does. He, he shows them that they had rejected all of their deliverers. So it was no surprise when Jesus came, the son, Jesus gave a parable about that. You know, you killed all the others, and when I sent my son, God says, when I sent my son, you killed him too. So Stephen is reminding the council that the sons of Jacob, who they were so proud of, you know, that those were the, they put all those guys on pedestals. We're seeing that they were pretty bad dudes, weren't they? until they got saved, but they were so proud, you know, well, I'm from the tribe of Zebulun, I'm from the tribe of Dan, or, you know, that, that those were their patriarchal fathers, but Stephen reminds them that initially they rejected God's chosen deliverer, Joseph, their own brother, and that was during the patriarchal period of Israel's history. Then Stephen goes on to point out that the children of Israel also initially rejected Moses, who was God's chosen deliverer for them during the Old Covenant law period. Likewise, they rejected and killed many of God's prophets in what is called the temple period of Israel's history. And so not surprisingly, this pattern of rejecting their deliverers on their first visit to them, this pattern continued in the era of the new covenant when Israel rejected and murdered her, her Messiah, the Christ, on the occasion of his first coming. Are you following me? Everybody following me? Okay, if not, get another cup of coffee. <laughs> Well, after Stephen's reminder that Jacob's sons rejected and sold Joseph out of what? What did it say in verse 9? Out of, why'd they reject him? Envy. See the word? Out of envy. They envied him. He reminds them of that. Then he references Genesis chapter 39 when he says, but God was with him. God was with Joseph and he delivered eventually... He delivered him out of all his afflictions and made him governor. It was actually vizier was the term or prime minister. We're going to use vizier because that was the ancient actual term for the second one under Pharaoh. 
But he made him governor over Egypt and all Pharaoh's house. That's what um, Stephen said in Acts 7.10. But he's quoting from Genesis 39. So again, we find that his implication here is typological. In other words, what he's saying, as with Joseph, who God delivered out of all his afflictions and set him up at the right hand of Pharaoh, so too Jesus, the just one was delivered out of all of his afflictions, never ever to again endure suffering, shame, and death. Again, never to endure those things again. Pictured by Joseph's rise from the pit and the prison, we'll talk about that today, the pit and the prison, to the palace of Pharaoh, what did Christ do? Same thing, right? The pit of death, he rose and is exalted to sit at the Father's right hand. Then Stephen proceeded to mention to the council what happened with the patriarchs after they betrayed and rejected Joseph. What happened? Well, we learn from Psalm 105, verses 17 and 18, that it was actually God who brought the great famine on the lands. Egypt and Canaan and other lands. God brought that famine. Um, However, because of the work in and through Joseph, because of the work of Joseph, the Gentiles, the Egyptians, were prepared for that famine, weren't they? Because of Joseph. They had Joseph with them. But Israel did not have Joseph with them. Israel, I'm talking about Jacob. His name was changed to Israel, and it's his little family, you know, of 70 people. They rejected Joseph, so they didn't have Joseph with them, just like Israel doesn't have Jesus with them. And so after she she rejected and, and rid herself of Joseph, Things got so bad, so severe, that Stephen says in verse 11, our fathers found no sustenance. They were going to starve to death. There was no more grain because of that famine. Israel was in great tribulation. Ever heard that, hear that term before? She rejected Joseph, so she went through great tribulation. Unknown to the patriarchs, God was providentially leading them in their time of great tribulation. He was leading them to the one and only source for their salvation. The only one who is the bread of life. The ve- and he was the very brother that they thought they had gotten rid of, right? They thought they were done with him. And then they had even deceived Jacob into believing that he was dead. Well, you see, this is exactly what the sons of Jacob's descendants had done. The the members of the high council that Stephen is talking to had also just gotten rid of Jesus, and they thought they were done with him. They'd gotten rid of him. They saw him dead, crucified. And then what did they do? They too deceived Jacob, Israel, 
They deceived Israel into believing they had gotten rid of him by bribing the Roman soldiers to lie about what had happened at the empty tomb. You get the picture? Are you seeing the picture? It's, it's, there's no doubt Joseph is a type of Jesus. And he was, Stephen was using the account um, of Joseph to warn Israel's religious rulers that their rejection of Jesus which had just happened, that their rejection was going to plunge them into a severe famine. Not a physical famine, but a spiritual famine that would last a long time. In fact, you know what? They're still living in the time of spiritual famine is still going on today and it will not end until finally Israel, Jacob, is driven through great tribulation to the one source of salvation. The long-awaited repentance of Jacob's descendants will finally occur when at the end of the seven-year tribulation, like the seven-year time of famine, at the end of that tribulation, when Jesus returns at his second coming and did like Joseph did when he said, I am Joseph, I am Jesus whom you pierced, and they will finally bow the knee before him and accept him. And what did, what did Stephen say about Joseph when he was accepted? Look at verse 13. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren. Isn't that interesting? The second time. Two comings. Two comings of Christ. First time, rejection. Second time, acceptance and glorification. So the fact is that Joseph was not only very much alive, contrary to what his father Jacob thought, but he was very much in God's continual providential care. God, sovereign God, orchestrated circumstances. You know, the last, last time, two weeks ago, we left Joseph. He had just been sold to a passing caravan on their way to Egypt, right? Okay, so now we pick up the story, and you can move over now to Genesis chapter 39. And um, we find out that Joseph was... There, standing in public shame, it doesn't tell us this, but we know from extra-biblical sources, he was standing there, you know, in, in an Egyptian slave market. But God orchestrated things so that he was taking care of Joseph, so that he was purchased by a rather decent, responsible, wealthy Egyptian by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar. And Potiphar was the captain of the guard, it tells us in verse 1. That means he was the captain of the guard of Pharaoh's palace. So he was an important guy. And he saw Joseph standing there and uh, he bought him and took him home and observed him working. And he, he noted that Joseph had good character. He, he had strength. He was only how old? 17, 17 years old. But he watched him as he worked for him. 
and he saw that he had integrity and administrative skills. And pretty soon, Potiphar entrusted to Joseph his entire household. He made him the steward of his entire home, his house, his servants, everybody. And he came to the realization in verse 3, you see it, that the Lord was with Joseph, causing all that he did to prosper in his hand. Now, that's a pretty amazing statement for an Egyptian whose name, you know what Potiphar means? Devoted to the sun. You know, they believed in it, all kinds of sun god, moon god, all kinds of gods. His name means devoted to the sun god. For an Egyptian like that to acknowledge the reality of Joseph's Lord tells us that Joseph was a very positive witness to Potiphar. We're going to find out that Joseph spoke of his Lord, his God, every chance he got. He was bold. He was a slave, right? Which means he owned absolutely nothing. And yet, Scripture tells us in verse 2 that he was a prosperous man. Now, how can that be? If he's a slave and he doesn't own a thing, how can he be prosperous? Huh? Right. He was prosperous in the Lord. The Lord was with him. He was prosperous in his faith in God. His hope. You see, that which kept him going in all his difficult times was God's revelation. Isn't that what keeps you going? The word of God? Now, he didn't have the written word of God, but he had received two dreams, didn't he? And he never forgot them. Dreams that one day he would be the patriarchal head, sort of, so to speak, of his family. And he was that was the joy set before him, those dreams. That's what he clung to. God promised this, and so he just believed it. Although he was, uh, oh, and he was also prosperous in character. If you have integrity, you're prosperous. There's so many people who have none, <laughs> none whatsoever. They're in the negative numbers nowadays. Have you noticed, by the way? Have you noticed? <laughs> um, so although he was a slave in Egypt, inwardly he was free. Whereas in contrast, his brothers over back in Canaan, they were free, and yet they were slaves. They were slaves to their secrets and their sin and their, their guilt and their shame and the deception of their own father. They were the ones who were slaves. Spiritually, we look at Jacob's family, this little infant nation of 70 people. That family <laughs> didn't have a very good start. They, they're spiritually, they are in shambles. They presented about the poorest witness for the Lord that you can imagine. They're to be God's witnesses to the rest of the world. They're pretty pathetic. What do we find out? Last time we talked about how Reuben, the eldest son, had slept with his father's concubine, the mother of two of his brothers, Bilhah. Then we found out that Dinah, the only daughter of Jacob mentioned, had enjoyed the company of the daughters of the land. In other words, she liked fellowshipping and partying with the Canaanite girls. And I don't know why her daddy let her go into Shechem without, you know, someone to chauffeur her, but she shouldn't have been there anyway. And so she got raped by one of the sons of the land. Simeon and Levi, what did they do? 
they slaughtered all the males. Every male. First of all, they deceived, and then they slaughtered all the men, and even boys, I suppose, in the uh, entire city of, of Shechem to get even for their sister having been raped. Judah, the fourth in line, he uh, married a Canaanite woman and then proceeded to have three sons with her, her, two of whom were so evil that the Lord slew them. And then we find out later on when his wife died, he conceived twins by his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, who disguised herself as a temple prostitute. Well, then all the other sons, except for Joseph and Benjamin, all the sons not only participated in the deception, but also in the looting and the kidnapping of all the uh, women and children of the city of, of Shechem. They all participated in that. And then they sold their brother as a slave and lied to their father about it. And you thought you had problems with your kids? (laughs) Right, Judy? (laughs) You know, there was no family unity in this family. This was a dysfunctional family. Uh, There was no family unity. The women, remember how we learned last year? The wives were always competing with one another for children, and and they didn't get along. So the wives don't get along. There's no peace. There's very little love evident. Um, The brothers don't get along. And there's, you know what? There is no mention of the Lord ever by the brothers until you get all the way to Genesis chapter 44. No word about them praying or anything. These guys were not saved. (laughs) They're, they're not they're not believers. <laughs> they're not believers until they come before Joseph and repent. But at this point, no, these are not believers. Uh, well, they believe in the right God, but they're certainly not. It's not in their heart, is it? It's all external. So anyway, this is just a uh, a mess of a family. So so God looks down. He knows that this little infant nation needs to be separated from the influences of the Canaanites and the dangers of intermarriage. They're already, I mean, look at Judah. He intermarried already, and, and Dinah was going to intermarry, and the Shechemites wanted to intermarry. So God is looking down. He says, I've got to protect this infant nation. I've got to separate her because instead of her being an influence on the world, the world is being an influence on her. And that's what's happening with the church today. More influence from the world on the church than the church is having on the world, at least here in America. So God needed to keep this nation set apart because it was through her he would bring his Savior to the world. That's what he promised through his covenants. He needed to keep her sanctified and set apart as a people. Now, as I mentioned to you briefly last time, the Egyptians were... They were about the most bigoted racial people that this world has ever seen. I don't know if you know that, but they believed that they alone came from the gods and all other people came from lesser sources, you know. I I don't know if they believed in evolution or whatever, but they were special. Isn't it amazing how people always think their, their little group is the best? That's so dumb. We all came from Adam and Eve, didn't we? Anyhow, so they would not, and another thing is they looked down their noses at shepherds. 
exactly. And they thought shepherds were an abomination. So they would not intermarry with Jacob's family. That was a no-no. That was taboo. They would never do that. And then later on when Jacob's family, when the Jews became slaves in Egypt, they would never consider intermarrying with slaves either. So racial and social bigotry actually helped to keep, there's always a silver lining, helped to keep Jacob's descendants separate in polytheistic Egypt. You know, they went to the land of Goshen. They were put separate. And there, um, they actually prospered. They grew mightily. They increased in numbers and they increased in prosperity. So this move to Egypt was an act of God's grace. Now, yes, what started out as sweet because of Joseph's Pharaoh later turned sour, didn't it? When there was a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph and made the Jews slaves, God had predicted that actually to Abraham. He said, your descendants will serve in a foreign land and they will be slaves for 400 years. So it did turn sour. But even in that, there was, it was good because they were separate and they came out increased in numbers. They just multiplied, multiplied, multiplied. And then the Egyptians gave them all their riches. So they came out prosperous. And they made their exodus as a separate people who claimed Yahweh as their God. Do you know that God also moved his son to Egypt for protection? Didn't he? Mm -hmm. From Herod? Yep. He moved his son to Egypt just like he moved Joseph. And that was to protect Jesus' family, his mom and dad and him, from Herod the Great, who wanted to kill him. And also it was to protect his spiritual family, because if something happened to Jesus, would we be here? Nope. So Joseph surrendered himself. As just a young man, he surrendered himself to become the best slave that Potiphar ever had. And his work ethic and his integrity were noticed. And before too long, he found great favor with Potiphar. He didn't put on the long, sulky face. Have you ever seen young people working or you go to the cash register and they're complaining about the work and they can't wait till the next break and they're down in the dump. And it's not just young people, it's a lot of other people too. Uh, the the sullen, pouty look and the, the resentful attitude. He didn't do that. Joseph did not do that. He did not rehearse over and over and over again in his mind, you know, with senseless complaints that wouldn't get him anywhere anyway, about his fate. It's not fair. It's not fair. I'm not getting paid enough. And this is too hard. He didn't do that. did? Or did he rehearse over and over again in his mind how he was one day going to get revenge on his brothers? No. Evidently, once the initial shock of everything was absorbed, I'm a slave. This is, this is it. You know, this is the way it is. He decided that God had some wise purpose in having allowed him to be sold as a slave. He trusted God. There's a reason for this. 
He didn't know Romans 8.28, did he? That all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But he knew to trust God in his dark circumstances. And he thought to himself, he thought, if God wants me to be a slave, then I will just be the best slave in all Egypt. I'll study my master until I know him better than he knows himself. And I'll make his interests my own. And I'll perform everything I do as unto the Lord, not as unto Potiphar. You know, attitude is everything, isn't it? The wise Egyptian Potiphar eventually gave Joseph full authority over every facet of his enterprise. That's trust. That's in verse uh, 4. What was he doing? Unknowingly, he was blessing a descendant of Abraham. And subsequently, God blessed Potiphar. It says uh, in in, uh, verse 5, he blessed him for having blessed Joseph. He was good to Joseph. And so God blessed Potiphar in both home and field. Now, if you look at verse 6, Joseph is described in the King James as a goodly person (laughs) and well-favored. Do you know what that means in the original Hebrew? He was good-looking, not only in face, but in physique. Now, the Bible only speaks of two other men who were especially good-looking. Anybody want to guess who those two men were? David. And who else? No? He was probably pretty buff. (laughs) Samson. (laughs) No, David and his conceited son, Absalom. Yes, he was very good looking and he really loved his long hair. Um, and there is one describe one man who's described as being an exceedingly beautiful child. Yes, who said that? Connie. Oh, my daughter. <laughs> I don't know if he was exceedingly beautiful when he grew up, but uh, well, his face glowed, didn't it? I think Stephen was exceedingly beautiful when his face was glowing like an angel. All right, so that was just uh, trivia. Okay, so then when, when things finally, you know, he worked for Potiphar for years, and things were going fairly well and smooth, you know, under the circumstances. He is a slave. <laughs> but uh, things are going okay, and then all of a sudden, mm, he finds himself in the midst of a temptation, which is how life is. And this temptation was brought on by who? Potiphar's wife. Now, Joseph's office, he would have had a stewardship office. It would have been located in Potiphar's house. So it was inevitable that Mrs. Potiphar would see him, and she did, and she liked what she saw, didn't she? I think this is why we're told he was (laughs) good-looking. And eventually, she made a very brazen proposition lie with me. That's pretty bold, isn't it? And of course, Joseph righteously resisted that temptation and tried to explain to her 
that his compliance would not only betray the trust that his master, by the way, your husband, (laughs) had put in him, you know, I'm not going to betray your husband, my master. He's been so good to me. But morally, he he told her, I cannot do, look at this, this is in verse 8, I think, 9, 9, okay, verse 9. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. Now, how did he know it was a sin? Uh, That um, adultery was a sin. The Ten Commandments hadn't been written yet. You know, it tells us in Romans 2.15 that God has written his moral laws on men's hearts. Even before he wrote it on stone, men knew ahead of time that adultery was a sin. Even if Joseph had been all alone in the house with Mrs. Potiphar, which she arranges later on, by the way, and nobody knew what they were doing, and even though sexual promiscuity was rampant in slave-holding households like this, yet Joseph understood that he served a holy, omniscient God. Even if they were alone, who would see? God would see. To commit a sin against him, especially, but also against Potiphar, that was absolutely unthinkable to Joseph. He wouldn't even consider it. That's wonderful. But do you think Potiphar's wife cared? <laughs> she, she didn't care about Joseph's reasons, his concern, his morality. She didn't care about his God, and she certainly didn't even seem to care about her husband, did she? So she persisted day by day, it tells us. Day by she was very persistent that she that uh, she wanted him to lie by her and be with her it says in verse 10 so poor joseph he has to spend most of his day trying to avoid her you know go around the next corner and there she is <laughs> lie with me lie with me <laughs> be with me so he's trying everywhere he goes he says oh i got to you know sidestep her shameless advances the temptation of joseph by the persistent Mrs. Potiphar, foreshadowed the persistent temptation of Jesus by whom? Who? Satan. Okay, and I'm going to skip over this real fast, but it's in your notes. He, too, encountered... Actually, there's three ways that she um, tempted Joseph. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It says that, first of all, she cast her eyes on him, and then she attempted to get Joseph to listen, and then it says that she finally (laughs) reached out and touched him. Three different temptations. Jesus also encountered three different temptations by Satan in the wilderness, didn't he? Was Joseph in the wilderness? Yes. Egypt is a picture of the world. He was in the wilderness of the world. So there's three and three. Joseph pictured Jesus' wilderness temptations also in that he resisted Mrs. Potiphar. He did not sin, did he? He resisted her. Like Christ, I said he was in the wilderness. Now, although he didn't have Jesus' example of using what as his weapon, what was Christ's weapon against Satan? The scripture, the sword, the word of God. He didn't have that example, and he didn't have Paul's God-inspired advice to flee youthful lusts. 
But that's exactly what Joseph did. He fled. (laughs) When Mrs. Potiphar reached out and touched him, he fled. And she, she was holding on to what? His garment. And he fled so fast that it just slipped right off of him, his outer garment. And she was left holding it in her hand, it tells us, verses 12 and 13. She's going to use that as evidence against him. One of your homework questions is to uh, do a little study, a mini study. It's interesting, and you can have fun with it, about Joseph and his garments. <laughs> Remember the coat of many colors? And now here, this garment, and later on, before he goes before Pharaoh, he changes his garment and shaves himself. And then when Pharaoh makes him the vizier of Egypt, he gives him new linen clothing and a gold necklace. So there's a lot of the clothing of Joseph that you could have fun studying. Well, in contra- one thing in contrast um, to Joseph is that Jesus did not flee Satan in the wilderness. Joseph had to flee Mrs. Potiphar, but did Jesus need to flee Satan? Why? Why did he not need to flee him? Jesus is the creator. Satan, don't listen to the Mormons who would tell you that Lucifer and Jesus are brothers, both created beings. No. Jesus is creator. Lucifer is one of the angels he created. Also, Jesus cannot sin. He was the God-man, okay? So as man, he could be tempted. But as God, he cannot sin. And his deity always overrules humanity. So he couldn't sin. He One thing God can't do is sin. So that's called the impeccability. It's the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. So who did the fleeing? When Jesus had enough of Satan, what did he say to him? Get thee hence, Satan. And what did Satan have to do? He had to flee. Satan, he had no choice. He has to obey his creator. And he fled the scene. Well, having done the right thing in fleeing temptation, uh, Joseph paid dearly for it, didn't he? He paid. He was maliciously and falsely accused. You know, the passion of lust, which is often mistaken for love, don't confuse lust and love, but the passion of lust can quickly turn to hate. A person rejected will often seek revenge for the damage that has been done to their pride. And that's exactly what Mrs. Potiphar did. She sought revenge on Joseph. With his outer garment still in her hand, she hastily devised a plan to make him suffer for having rejected her, for his resistance to her. So she summoned the men of the household um, and lied to them. First of all, we're told that there was no one in the house when she did this, by the way. I think she made sure all the other servants were out of the house. Of course, she waited till her husband was gone, too. But now she calls them back into the home, and she lies to them. And I got to think about when she kept saying to Joseph, lie with me. Not only did she want him to lie with her, but she wanted him to lie with her. (laughs) So she lies, and in her accusation, she, well, of course, she accuses Joseph of attempted rape. And then she she calls him a Hebrew, 
she highlights the fact that he's a Hebrew, he's a foreigner. And then she says this in verse 14. This is amazing. Her husband brought him, this Hebrew, into their household to mock us. To mock them? And then later she uses that same line of reasoning with her husband. When Potiphar comes home, she, she basically says uh, that it was Potiphar's fault. Isn't, isn't this amazing how women can do this? <laughs> it's her husband's fault because he brought the Hebrew servant into their home to mock me. So she changes the pronoun. First of all, Potiphar brought him into the house to mock both of them. And then it gets down to her. You know, you brought him in the home to mock me. This is called blame shifting, isn't it? We've seen this before. Started out with Adam and Eve, didn't it? This blame shifting tactic was a nonsensical attempt to get Potiphar, her husband, to feel guilty for what she had done. Mm. It was really a theatrical act, wasn't it? She was a drama queen. And it was an outright lie. However, since nobody had been in the house when it had happened, she, um, she could say anything she wanted because it was her word against the word of a slave, you know? She said she screamed when, when, uh, when Joseph attacked her and that it was her scream that frightened him into fleeing. And look, he left behind his garment. This proves, this proves it all. Well, the charge against Joseph was completely false. It was completely unjustified. But do we hear him say anything at all in his defense? No. Does that remind you of somebody else too? Falsely charged, falsely charged, uh, unjustified. But he said nothing in his own defense. Charles Spurgeon said, So eloquent was Joseph in his silence that there is not a word of complaint throughout the whole record of his life. Wow. He just amazes me. All he went through. And he ne- we never hear one word of complaint. Well, of course, the charge against Jesus was also false. You know, the, the chief priest went out and hired, bribed some false witnesses to say, you know, well, we heard him say uh, that he would destroy, he could destroy the temple and then build, rebuild it in three days. You know what? That was not only a misquote, it was a misinterpretation of what he actually said. He didn't say he could destroy the temple. He said the Jews would destroy the temple, and he was speaking of his body, the temple of God. He said the Jews would destroy it, and he didn't say he would rebuild it in three days. You know what he said? I will raise it in three days. And he too, Jesus, did not defend himself against false testimony. Well, Potiphar comes home, and hearing his wife's accusation against Joseph, and indirectly against himself, you know, you're the one who brought him into the house to mock me. (laughs) We are told in verse 19 that Potiphar's wrath was kindled. But interestingly, it doesn't tell us who his wrath was, uh, or, or who was the individual that caused his wrath, does it? It just says his wrath was kindled. Now, He was a discerning man. Surely he knew about his wife's flirtatious ways, that she was a promiscuous woman. 
Now, he had, by this time, Joseph had been working for him for years. I don't know exactly how many, but many years. And he had come to fully trust Joseph. He had closely observed him. He knew him to be a moral, trustworthy young man. And so it is possible that his wrath was aimed at his wife and her lies. Now, if Potiphar, think about this, he is serving as as, um, Joseph's judge. He's the judge here. If he genuinely had believed his wife, what would have happened to Joseph? He would have been killed on the spot. Instead, he's put into a prison. And we find out the prison is actually in Potiphar's basement. Now, if, here's the other scenario, if Potiphar had not punished Joseph in some way, he would be openly admitting that his wife had tried to seduce a slave. And that would be a terrible reflection on who? On himself. So Potiphar, who is he reminding you of in the story of Jesus? Pontius Pilate, very good. Potiphar was like Pontius Pilate, who was also put between a rock and a hard place. Pilate knew the accusations of the Jews against Jesus were false. He said it three times. I find, you know, nothing worthy of death. But he caved to the pressure in order to preserve his own shaky relationship with Caesar and not lose his position of power as governor of Judea. And the Jews were, the the conniving Jews were threatening him with that, weren't they? And so to cover his own tail, Pilate, like Potiphar, committed injustice against an innocent man. So once again, for absolutely no fault of his own, Joseph suddenly lost everything that he had worked so hard to gain all those years working for Potiphar, you know, with his conscientious stewardship, his, his loyalty to his master. So he went from the top floor to the basement in a moment's time. He was thrown into another pit, we could say, a prison pit. He had resisted temptation. He did the right thing. You know, he stood for righteousness, and yet he was made to suffer for someone else's sin just like Jesus. But even in prison, as in Potiphar's penthouse, (laughs) even in Potiphar's prison, it says in verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph, and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. He was even prosperous in prison. You see, God's providential hand was working everything together for what? For good. Which was, what was God's purpose in all this? He is moving Joseph closer and closer to where he could save his family and provide for them a place to dwell with him and also a place where he could save Egypt. Egypt pictures the world. The Lord, and in all of this, the Lord was at work. He, he is developing and maturing Joseph. And we grow the most through trials. 
He was being prepared for the task of serving at the highest, as the highest official in the land of Egypt under Pharaoh. All, everything he's going through is preparing him for this. His time of service to Potiphar was very beneficial. His years as overseer of Potiphar's house um, helped him to learn the Egyptian language. When he went to Egypt, did he know Egyptian? No. So over the years, he learns about Egyptian language. He learns the Egyptian culture. He learns about the political interworkings of the nation and what goes on in the palace. You know, Potiphar was an important man. He, he, shared, he learned all kinds of things from Potiphar. And all these, greatly, these things greatly sharpened his leadership and administrative skills. Being in prison... <laughs> was God's provided escape from Mrs. Potiphar. <laughs> you know, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, and he'll, he'll always give you what? A way of an escape that you may bear it. So down in prison, he was safe from Mrs. Potiphar. That's, you know, one way to look at it, isn't it? I'm sure she didn't go down there to bother him. Um, and also, while in prison... While in prison, Joseph had a divine appointment with the man who eventually would introduce him to Pharaoh. So Joseph's integrity and diligence soon were noticed by someone else. He won favor in the sight of the keeper of the prisoner, of the prison. So the man who was in charge of the prison noticed Joseph and he committed all prisoners to him. It tells us in verses 21 to 23. So now he's the keeper of the keys of the prison. (laughs) That just came to me. That reminds me of Jesus too. He was chief administrator of the prison. Again, I'm going to quote from Spurgeon because I love this quote. He says, like a cork, C-O-R-K, like a cork, which you may push down, but it is sure to come up again. So was Joseph. Right? Just like a cork, you can't keep that guy down. Just keeps popping to the top. Well, providentially, two of Pharaoh's key servants committed unknown offenses. We don't know what these two dudes did, but whatever they did, it aroused the wrath, the anger of Pharaoh, and it says he put them in the um, ward, in the house of the captain of the guard. Now, who's the captain of the guard? Do you remember 39 verse 1? Who's the captain of the guard? Potiphar. Potiphar. So he puts them in the ward in the prison that's in the house of Potiphar. So that's how I told you that Joseph, when he's in prison, he's actually in Potiphar's basement. That's the dungeon down there. He's into the, he's in that place. Um, now, I don't know, maybe there was an attempt to poison the pharaoh. That's what I would guess because that would explain why the, um, the, the two men that are thrown into the prison, one was in charge of what he drank. That would be the cupbearer. You know, before Pharaoh would drink, this guy would drink something first in case it was going to be poison and he would die and then Pharaoh wouldn't drink it. <laughs> so the cupbearer and then the baker and he would be in charge of what, the, what Pharaoh ate. So maybe somebody had tried to poison Pharaoh and these guys were in charge, so they were thrown in prison. Whatever. The only thing we really read about in the narrative regarding Joseph's time in prison 
has to do with these two guys, these two prisoners, two other prisoners with Joseph, two malefactors, transgressors. You getting it? I'll return to that if you didn't. Okay. Um, Now, okay, so Joseph was then charged by Potiphar, and this is interesting, this is in chapter 40, verse 4. Potiphar, he's still working for Potiphar because he's charged by Potiphar with the responsibility of serving these two other prisoners. And from those two prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker, he had, again, the opportunity to learn more about palace operations and about Pharaoh himself. Because these two guys were always there with Pharaoh. So if anybody knew Pharaoh, it was the butler and the baker and the candlestick maker. I always have to say. <laughs> and you know what? That, that knowledge about the inner workings, the intrigue of the palace, and knowledge about Pharaoh himself, what is he like? You know, what does he like and what does he not like? Well, he doesn't like to be poisoned. We know that. Um, but that would be good to know if one day you were going to be the prime minister of the country, right? Now, Joseph, did Joseph know that? No, but God did. So in God's perfect timing, he again intervened in the life of Joseph by sending dreams. And he sent those dreams on the same night to the butler and the baker. Now, the Egyptians were very, very serious about dreams because they believed that they revealed the future, something about the future, especially if the dreams were given to a king. Now, in this case, they were right, but only because the dreams came from God. Now, when Joseph came, you know, he was put in charge of these two men. He was to serve these two men. So in the morning when he went into their cell to check on them, this is verses 6 and 7, he notices a new deep sadness on their faces, and he asks them the reason for it. And this provides us with a little peek into Joseph's heart. You see, if he was full of anger and bitterness and resentment, would he be concerned about the personal problems of others? No, but he he was. And in his empathy, he again pictures Jesus. You see, Jesus came into our prison here in Egypt to serve us and to empathize with the feelings of our infirmities, didn't he? And to show his compassion for us, which is exactly what Joseph is doing with these two other prisoners. So the two men, they trust Joseph with the reason for their despondency, and they explain to him that they had both had vivid dreams the previous night, and uh, they upset them, but they didn't have anyone to interpret the dreams for them. Now, remember, how was Joseph mocked by his brothers? As the dreamer, right? (laughs) Well, he's got the gift of dream interpretation. And he immediately expressed his confidence that God would reveal to him the interpretation. He said, do not interpretations belong to God right away. He always puts God first. He gives a preeminence to God. So he's he's saying, You know, these interpretations aren't going to be my own. They're from God. And then he he goes on to interpret their dreams. The chief butler went first. 
His dream had to do with vines, branches, buds, blossoms, and clusters of grapes. And in his dream, the vine that he dreamt about had three branches, which rapidly blooded, budded, <laughs> blossomed, and produced grapes. Then the cupbearer pressed the grapes into the Pharaoh's cup and put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Well, for Joseph, that was easy. He said that um, in three days, represented by the three branches, he was going to be put back into his position as cupbearer. Very simple. It was so obvious to him. Nobody else could figure it out. But it was. And then he says, you're going to be restored to your position. And so when you go back to your position, would you please show kindness by making mention of me to Pharaoh? So he asked the butler to please remember him in three days, you know, when he goes back to the palace. Well, then hearing the good inter- interpretation of the baker's dream, the, um, I mean, the butler's dream, the baker then goes on and tells him about his dream. And in his dream, it also involves a number three, three white baskets full of all manner of bakery goods, okay, for the pharaoh. But unlike the cupbearer's dream, the baker did not put the bakery goods into pharaoh's hands because birds came along and ate all the donuts. <laughs> That's my interpretation. I don't have the gift of dream interpretation. (laughs) Well, again, though, Joseph did not hesitate to give the interpretation of the baker's dream, even though it was not pleasant. The three baskets, just like the three vine branches of the butler's dream, represented three days. And in three days, the baker was going to have his head removed Yuck. And his body hung from a tree for the birds to eat his flesh. Now, as difficult as that prophecy revelation was to deliver, Joseph boldly spoke forth God's revelation. Just as he had did years earlier when he told his own dreams to his brothers, knowing that it wouldn't go over too well, right? And it didn't. But here he he. He just, he's faithful. He's as faithful to deliver a message of doom and judgment as a message of deliverance. And that's the mark of a true prophet. There are so many false teachers today in churches because they only want to talk about love and heaven and they don't ever want to talk about condemnation and hell. And, but Jesus spoke more about what? Hell than he ever did heaven. James Montgomery Boyce said this. He said, how many there are who are willing to preach the cupbearer's sermon but are unwilling to preach the baker's sermon? But we have to teach the whole counsel of God, don't we? So anyway, naturally, Joseph did not ask the butler to remember him to Pharaoh because he wouldn't have a head to remember him. So for Joseph, for Joseph, it must have seemed like the Lord was about to provide a way out of prison because he thought, well, once Pharaoh learns of my ability to interpret dreams, he's going to get me out of here and he's going to want me to be with him in case he has some more dreams or, or some dreams. At this point, he hasn't had any dreams. So his hopes, Joseph's hopes for discharge must have soared when three days pass and what happened? His interpretations came to pass, exactly as he had said. 
Uh, and the third day, by the way, was Pharaoh's birthday. It was his birthday. And the Pharaohs back in that time had a custom of releasing prisoners, select prisoners, on their own birthday, the king's birthday. There was somebody else released on a special day, the Passover, right? And the Jews had, I mean, the people had a choice to pick Barabbas or Jesus. <laughs> anyway, so on his birthday, he, he releases, suddenly releases the butler and the baker to their positions of service. I think he needed them for the birthday party celebration. Because as soon as the birthday party was over, the butler was restored. But what happened to the baker? He was killed. He was, we don't have an explanation, but he was hanged. Well, Joseph's account with the two men in prison is just too similar to Jesus' encounter with the two guilty malefactors, evildoers, condemned with him to ignore. You agree? Two in prison with Joseph, two condemned to die with Jesus. And in each situation, one condemned man, one of the two, was graciously pardoned and granted restoration of fellowship by his master, while the other received the judgment he was due, which was death. Also, in both of those situations, there was a remembrance request. Joseph, will you remember me? The thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't forget what he's promised? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Not like the butler. Hmm. The butler, it's hard to believe it, but the bu butler had total memory loss as soon as he was released. He completely forgot about the man who had served him and who, and who had shown him compassion and had given him hope when he was condemned. But he did. He completely forgot about Joseph. Joseph was wronged again, wasn't he? His rising hopes were once more dashed against the rocks of reality. He spent two additional years in prison because the butler forgot about him. One man's carelessness toward another man's suffering. You talk about a big letdown. You know, I'm sure every day that Joseph woke up, first thing, you know, in prison, first thing he would pray, please, God. Let the butler remember me today, please, that old guy. But he wasn't bitter, you know, he didn't say, doesn't say anything ever negative about anybody. But nothing happened, and days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, months turned into years, two whole years extra in prison. And what was it that was keeping him from being bitter what helped him endure all of his years of toil and affliction by his brothers, by the Ishmaelites, by Mrs. Potiphar, and by Mr. Butler? <laughs> what was the joy set before him that kept him going? His dreams, exactly. That was the dream, the uh, joy that helped him endure his sufferings, his injustices, his shame, and his years of being forgotten. 
He wasn't forgotten by God, but he was forgotten by others. Spending years as a slave in a foreign land and even as a prisoner in a foreign dungeon was very likely not the pathway <laughs> to becoming the exalted leader of his family that Joseph would have imagined God had for him. Would you think that that, you know, if you got a promise that one day you were going to be exalted, you would not think it would be through a pit in a prison. But that's usually the way it is in the scripture and in life. So at some point, wouldn't you think that at some point he might have wondered if he had misunderstood his dreams? You know, questioned God's revelation? But he didn't. Don't you think at some point he would wonder if God's plan had, plan had somehow been defeated? Satan had gotten the victory? But he didn't. Remember that. Don't doubt God's revelation. No matter how much time has passed, he will, he will carry every, he will fulfill it. We think we, you'd think you might hear something, some words of complaint, anger, or self-pity, but we don't. Rather, what we repeatedly, we'll see this again next time, we repeatedly hear from Joseph words of submission to his God, words of allegiance to his God, and confidence in his God. This guy, as I study his life, he just keeps increasing in my, you know, I, I always love Stephen. I love Daniel. It's like everybody I study, then I really, they become my new hero. But Joseph is incredible. He spoke openly of God. He wasn't ashamed to speak of him to Potiphar, to Potiphar's wife, to the butler, the baker. And when he is finally remembered by that absent-minded butler... <laughs> And he is called on to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. You know what the first thing out of his mouth is to Pharaoh? Words that exalt his God. He is just bold about God. Never ever does he succumb to the idea that his sufferings and his afflictions indicate that God had forgotten him or forsaken him. Never. So he's a pretty amazing picture of Jesus, isn't he? in so many ways. So make sure you read your notes when you get them, probably later this afternoon, if Louise can do that. They're ready to go. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much once again for the example of Joseph. Thank you that he did not become embittered about his sufferings. What an example to us. He emerged from his years of toil and affliction, praising you, because he seemed to understand that all of his sufferings were not meaningless. They were with purpose. In the midst of affliction, struggles, darkness, loneliness, he always seemed confident that you were at work in his life. And you were, and you are. And you were bringing him ever closer to the time of the fulfillment of your divine revelation. In his case, through his dreams. But in the meanwhile, he made sure that even in his times of suffering, he could be fruitful for you. Fruitful sufferings, we could call them. And he was fruitful for you. In fact, all of us are oftentimes most fruitful in those times of affliction because the darker the background, the greater we can shine for your glory. And that's what we ask, Father. I ask that every one of us, I know all of us are going through some kind of trial, at, 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 I'm sure, of some kind, 
May we shine for your glory in the midst of that trial. May we have fruitful sufferings for your glory. Thank you again for all that you have taught us by way of your spirit. Be with every woman. Put a hedge of protection around her and her family and keep her from the evil one. For we do ask these things in the blessed name of the just one, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.